Thank you for listening to the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. For copyright and disclaimers, as well as information about how to contact the iCritical Care staff, please listen to the notice at the end of this podcast. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Richard Savell. Today we have an opportunity to speak with Dr. Jonathan E. Savransky, MD, MHS. He's the lead author of an article published in the September 2010 edition of Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Critical Care Trial Design and Interpretation, a Primer. The uh, reference for this is Critical Care Medicine 2010, Volume 38, Number 9, pages 1882 to 1889. Dr. Savransky is an assistant professor of medicine at the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland and he is a practicing intensivist at the Johns Hopkins Bayview Medical Center in Baltimore, Maryland. Dr. Savransky, I I was very excited about reading your paper and and working in an institution where we're training residents and some fellows in critical care medicine. The issues that you discuss in your primer here are extraordinarily important when there's a big focus on trying to make uh, critical care into a, the evidence-based field that it should be, and uh, your article really helps to focus in on what the language is and how to make sense of what can be some confusing areas in our field. And I thought I'd let you begin by discussing why it's so crucial to understand clinical trial design in critical care. Well, thank you very much for the opportunity to talk about this. Um, One of the reasons why it's important for a clinician to understand critical care, clinical trial design, is that while there are a number of well-described epidemiology and statistics subjects, um, the field of critical care, clinical research, is actually relatively new. And in the past 20 years, there has really been an explosion of clinical trials in the critically ill patient, and practicing critical care physicians are now asked to evaluate the merits of therapies that are tested in these clinical trials when making treatment decisions for critically ill patients. One of the reasons why it's really important for critical care um, physicians to understand a little bit about clinical trial designs is also that there are specific concepts of enrolling patients into clinical trials when the patients are critically ill. For example, many patients with life-threatening illness are too ill to fully participate in the consent process, which then leads to something called surrogate consent, where you get consent from a family member. There are also timing issues in critical care research where you have to talk to a family who's just been presented with the fact that a loved one is very ill and might not survive and then explain to them that you might want to do research to better understand how to care for people with life-threatening illness. So all of these issues combined, I think, make it very important that clinicians have at least a basic understanding of how critical care design or critical care trials are both designed and interpreted. 
And this becomes an issue uh, that will come up throughout our podcast today. But again, as, as you've pointed out in, in your article, it, it's what allows a physician in the field to figure out which particular trial applies to their particular patient population and the strengths and weaknesses of new literature as it comes out, right? That's exactly correct. And so uh, along those lines, because of all the difficulties in uh, in designing critical care trials, the first part of your article focused in on the uh, concept of observational versus experimental designs, and I thought I'd give you an opportunity to talk about the benefits and the drawbacks of these various types of studies. Each of these type of trials, an observational study or a randomized or experimental design, have specific advantages. The advantage of an observational trial is that it can be easier and cheaper to perform. There's a lower threshold for investigator participation, which means that you may potentially get more quote-unquote real-world patients enrolled rather than patients who are in an academic medical center. And Perhaps the most important part is that in an observational trial, there are often fewer exclusion criteria, which may result in the patient enrolled being similar to a patient that a clinician might see on a day-to-day basis. The major disadvantage of an observational trial is that there's weaker evidence for a cause-effect relationship that you can't necessarily say that just because you see something in an observational trial, that the difference that you see is related to the differences in treatment. For that, usually most people would ask to see a randomized controlled trial where you at least have a higher chance that the patients in the study are similar between the treatment group and the control group. And I guess a good example of the limitations of an observational trial was the publication in the mid-1990s of a cohort study that asserted that there was an increased risk of death for patients in whom a pulmonary artery catheter was placed. This was a very important trial to do because prior to the trial having been done, Um, Physicians were not comfortable randomizing patients to either receive a pulmonary artery catheter or not. After the publication of this cohort trial, this observational trial, physician investigators were then able to complete several large randomized controlled trials to look at the effect of the use of pulmonary artery catheters on clinical outcomes in several types of patient groups. But importantly, the finding of increased risk of death with the use of a pulmonary artery catheter that was found in the observational trial was not confirmed in the subsequent randomized control trials. So let me let me just interject at this point. So so that was the the Connors trial in '96. I remember it came out during my residency. And the point was a, a couple sort of super important points that you're bringing up is one the the importance of the hypothesis generating nature of some of these observational trials, and two the concept of clinical equipoise. I remember that comes up whenever one looks specifically at some of these issues around the PA catheter and studying it. Right. 
So, so you're exactly correct that what, one of the things that the, that the Connors trial that you mentioned on, on the use of, of pulmonary artery catheters allowed um, was people prior to, to that publication did not have equipoise. They, did not, they were not comfortable randomizing patients to one treatment over the other because most physicians prior to that publication felt very strongly that, um, that the use of the pulmonary artery catheter was beneficial. And once that came out, people lost that, that belief and were much more comfortable randomizing patients because they did, I think, have uh, some equipoise. They weren't sure whether or not the pulmonary artery catheter was beneficial or not, which made them, I think, more comfortable randomizing patients to either receive it or not. So, Dr. Severinsky, before we get to discussing when we actually are doing the Holy Grail in terms of randomized trials, I was wondering if you could take a few moments and discuss case control versus cohort trials, perhaps the strengths and weaknesses, and when or why designers might choose one versus the other. Absolutely. So, so thank you for the, the question. A, uh, a case control trial is an observational trial. So, so there is no randomized intervention. And that involves identification of a study subject or, or a case who do and don't have an outcome of interest. And then to compare those particular uh, patients to see whether or not um, a treatment, a, a particular treatment, was or wasn't uh, effective. And this type of, of trial design is most useful for rare events, for rare cases. So if you're going to need to um, uh, scour your, your ICU or the ICUs across the country, um, it, it may be um, useful to, to, uh, to choose a, a, a type of trial design like, like a case control trial in which either the disease or the outcome is rare or uncommon. The problem with this is that there are multiple biases with this, and you may potentially find an association between a treatment and an outcome that is confounded by something that you are unable to measure. So confounding occurs when there is a third factor besides the exposure and the outcome that is associated with the exposure or the intervention and the outcome of interest. And this can distort the relationship between the exposure or the treatment and the outcome undergoing a study. The advantage of using a cohort trial is that you can uh, potentially follow patients along to see which patients may develop an outcome of interest and may potentially learn some very important factors about the contribution of treatments to uh, patient outcomes. And probably one of the better-known cohort trials in critical care are some of the long-term outcome studies done on patients who survive the acute lung injury, or ALI, syndrome. And they've shown that 
people are at high risk for developing weakness a year after the patient was successfully discharged from the ICU. Again, the limitation of this type of observational study is that you are unable in a cohort study to prove that a particular intervention caused an outcome. So, for example, in the long-term outcome studies of patients with acute lung injury, you can't prove what part of the therapy or what part of the illness for patients with acute lung injury is causally responsible for the weakness long-term, but you can show that they are associated. But this type of trial is an important one. I mean, as my understanding, just as a physician, so this would be the classic example of, of cigarette smoking. So you have large numbers of people exposed to cigarette smoke uh, and those who don't looking at the incidence uh, of lung cancer. So it, even if it's not a randomized trial, it's still a very important type of trial design, right? You're, you're, you're absolutely correct. And one of the things that, that observational trials allow you to do is to look at treatments in which the investigator might be uncomfortable randomizing patients to. So with your example, uh, very few people, even 40 years ago, would have been comfortable randomizing people to either smoke or not smoke. So you can look at the potential effect of treatments that somebody might not want to randomize a patient to. And so one of the questions I have for you leading into our next discussion topic of randomized trials, and I sort of wanted to ask you two questions going into it before you start uh, helping to explain things, is one, uh, watching over the last decade or so, that even when a randomized trial is performed, uh, people may argue, well, if you do a randomized trial, for example, the ARDSNET trial, where it's 6 cc's per kilogram versus 12, people argue that one arm may or may not be relevant to their patient, therefore the whole arm is relevant. And I guess my big question to you on that is, when they do a randomized trial that may have a protocol, people who don't want to implement the trial results say, that protocol isn't relevant to me. But if they don't do a protocol, then the question is, how do you design the trial in the first place? Maybe if, if we could start there. Surely. And, and you've asked and I think highlighted a couple of very important and controversial areas in critical care research. Because critical care patients are often very different from another, the therapies that people give to patients with life-threatening illness often vary from one center to another, sometimes even from one physician to another. So you get very heterogeneous types of patient practice. And because of this, it may be very difficult to find similar practice patterns across institutions. And if you want to test a particular therapy and you're interested in whether or not the therapy works, an investigator would, in theory, like to minimize some of this practice variation because the minimization of the practice variation may make it more likely that you will see a treatment effect if there is, in fact, a treatment effect. So the way to get around that is to standardize therapy. The problem, as you mentioned, with standardizing therapy is that it's hard to get 10 or 
five or even three critical care physicians to agree on what standard therapy is. And so that's led to some important controversies about what is standard of care and what is usual practice. Well, one of the other questions I had for you about some of these important randomized trials is uh, the important trial with Zygris, uh, activated protein C, and yet, uh, again, I, I, that trial came out as I was finishing fellowship, and yet over the last decade or so, even though we had done what is to be the holy grail of trials, it didn't seem to pan out. And so what would you teach uh, young intensivist, how to figure out this kind of conundrum? I wish I had a simple answer to figure <laughs> out how to how to better design the best clinical trial and, and how to interpret the few clinical trials that have shown a beneficial treatment effect. The problem is our patients are so different and the treatments that we give are so different that it's really hard to design a trial that will show a realistic treatment effect. In other words, a treatment effect that you're likely to find that won't cost a tremendous amount of money to, to perform. These, these trials can cost tens or even a hundred million dollars to do. And what this leads to when people are designing trials is to sometimes overestimate the treatment effect that somebody might see. And by treatment effect, usually what people look at are the case fatality rates or the mortality rates. And a lot of large clinical trials assume that you're going to see a decrease in mortality rate of 5% or 10%, which would be wonderful if we could find that. But most studies in other disciplines don't show such large treatment effects. For example, the, um, the trial of front-loaded TPA in acute MIs from 20 or 25 years ago showed a drop in mortality rate of 1%. And in order to show this treatment effect, they needed to enroll 20 to 30,000 patients so it's very, very complicated to do a critical care clinical trial with that many patients. And that leads to, again, some of these, these difficult decisions that the people who are designing the trials need to deal with in terms of whether or not to include a protocol and what type of, of treatment effect do you, are you going to estimate you're going to see. One of the questions I had for you, because uh, we're sort of heading towards the end, is I wanted to give you an opportunity to talk about surrogate endpoints. And I remember I was taught in the beginning of fellowship that a classic example of that is the ARDSNET trial, where the patients who received lower tidal volume ventilation may have been more hypoxic but lived. And, and it's often a difficult point to teach people uh, when one might see an immediate benefit when one switches to a particular mode of ventilation, but it doesn't quite fit with the, with the evidence, and I thought I'd let you speak about that. So that's one of the, I guess, the, another one of the conundrums that we have when trying to either interpret or design a critical care clinical trial is, as we've already discussed, um, while death or patient mortality rates are often the gold standard that people will use for determining whether or not a, a therapy is good or bad. It 
it's very expensive and very hard to show this in patients. So people will try to choose biologically plausible treatment effects that might be associated with death um, and that by using these biological, biologically plausible treatment effects or, or so-called surrogate endpoints, you can use a smaller number of patients to show whether or not a therapy works. Unfortunately, both with the example that you gave, oxygenation in acute lung injury, and with other examples like the use of mean arterial pressure in septic shock trials, therapies that have improved these surrogate endpoints have not necessarily improved patient mortality. And so right now it's very difficult to think about choosing a therapy just based on a surrogate endpoint, like improved oxygenation in acute lung injury or improved blood pressure in septic shock. One of the other points I'd, I'd like to let you focus in on for a few minutes is how should the practicing intensivist, what kind of approach should they take to determine if this particular trial applies to their patients? And as you point out, this comes under the rubric of external validity. Maybe if you could take a few minutes. So critical care trials enroll patients that are most likely to benefit from a therapy. And patients with an important comorbidity or underlying disorder may be excluded from enrollment into a clinical trial. And when you look at the figure one for most critical care clinical trials that describes the screening and then enrollment of the patients, in many clinical care trials, up to 10 patients are screened to enroll a single patient. And it's very difficult to know whether the therapy shown to be beneficial in that clinical trial would have a similar or a different response to the tested intervention compared with an enrolled patient. So that's a very complicated question to answer. I think the easiest thing to look at is if your patient is similar to that one patient who was enrolled compared with patients who were excluded. It's much more complicated to determine what you would do with a patient who might have been excluded from a clinical trial, and then you're left with both the risk of the therapy and the clinician's judgment to determine whether or not you should give that particular therapy. And I thought I'd let you uh, discuss at, in the next stage of the, of the podcast some of the uh, novel designs that may help us get around some of these problems in critical care research. Given the difficulty of performing critical care clinical trials that we've spent a few moments discussing, there's been a lot of interest in trying to come up with a different way to test therapies that may help patients with life-threatening illness. These so-called adaptive trial design techniques are intended to streamline selection of an effective intervention and they also can potentially handle some of the complications of finding out that the treatment effect of a drug is smaller than you expected or the mortality rate of patients enrolled to a clinical trial 
is lower than expected, both of which might lead, if you did not use an adaptive trial design, for a trial to be terminated early because of no effect. A recent trial, the trial comparing norepinephrine versus dopamine for patients with shock was such a type of adaptive trial design in which after set numbers of patients, an independent statistician reviewed the treatment effect and then determined whether or not the study could continue, should be modified, or stopped. And it is possible that these type of novel designs might lead to the development of better therapies or might allow cheaper studies that would allow you to enroll more patients into a trial. There are a lot of other potential ways to improve critical care clinical trials, including the possibility of using genomics or pharmacogenomics to better pick a patient who might benefit from a therapy. However, up until this point, none of these novel strategies has been proven to better find a useful therapy for critically ill patients. So these are potentially useful strategies, but again, none of them have led to an improved way of caring for critically ill patients. And so as a last question for you, I will, I will ask you this. So I, I recently gave a talk trying to summarize some of the recent important landmark trials in critical care to our surgeons here, and it's a difficult time to be excited about uh, evidence-based critical care because a lot of the big landmark trials from nearly a decade ago have been disproven or are certainly up in the air. And the response from the surgeons was, well, we can do whatever we like then. There, there isn't an evidence base in critical care. And I was not happy with that and remain very excited about an evidence-based approach to practicing critical care. And what would be your comments after putting together an article like this? So I would agree with you that there is probably a long way to go until we have the best evidence. But I think that we have ideas of, in some cases, what not to do. For example, we know giving high tidal volumes coupled with high plateau pressures in patients with acute lung injury is harmful. We know that tight glycemic control in non-cardiovascular surgical patients is harmful. And I think that over the next five to 10 years, a lot of things that have been done in the past, according to individual physician preferences, we may be able to at least point to large trials to say, yes, we can do this, or it doesn't make a difference what you do here, or potentially we may have some things that improve outcomes. So even though many of the trials have not shown true clinical benefit, I think that even an absence of a benefit is useful information for a practicing clinician. And, and the, the other two points that I wanted to make and, and get your thoughts on are, one is, I think the process is correct. What we're doing to try to answer these questions is right. And one of the other controversies this leads to is that 
you know, how ICUs are measured by government agencies based on data from a trial from three or four years ago that may have been disproven. And at this point in my career, I feel very strongly that these government agencies may not be able to be flexible enough and keep up with the literature enough to measure us properly using this evidence-based approach. And I wanted to hear your thoughts. I would agree that it is very complicated to come up with metrics by which a, an ICU ought to function. And there are certainly things that one would like never to have done, never have a, uh, a mismatched transfusion, right. in theory never to have a catheter-related infection. Right. Um, but, but it's going to be hard to come up with a universally or even mostly accepted group of benchmarks that each ICU should fit. I certainly would, would struggle with coming up with some criteria that certainly that my own ICU ought to be measured against, but, but I can probably come up with a few to at least look at. Right. Well, Dr. Severansky, I'm, I'm very grateful for your time. This article came out, and as I mentioned before, it's an extraordinarily useful tool both for intensivists in training and practicing intensivists to make sure that everybody's on the same page when they're looking at these important issues. We've been speaking today with Dr. Jonathan Severansky from the Johns Hopkins University School of Medicine, and we've been discussing his important article recently published in Critical Care Medicine, the title of which is Critical Care Trial Design and Interpretation a Primer. Thank you so much, Dr. Savransky, for joining us today. Thank you very much for having me. This concludes another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's iCritical Care podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more information, as well as nearly five years of archived podcasts. For the iCritical Care podcast, I'm Dr. Richard Savell. Registration is now open for SCCM's 40th Critical Care Congress, the largest multi-professional critical care event of the year. Celebrate four decades of society leadership and help chart the course for the future of critical care medicine. This year's Congress will take place January 15th through 19th, 2011 in San Diego, California, USA. Visit www.sccm.org slash congress for more information or to register. Or you can speak to a customer service representative. Experience all the hands-on workshops, cutting-edge educational sessions, and thought-provoking plenary sessions Congress has to offer. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members. Your host is the Society's Associate Editor for Podcasts, Richard Savell, MD, FCCM. Dr. Savell is the Medical Co-Director of the Surgical Intensive Care Unit at Montefiore Medical Center in New York City practicing under the leadership of Vladimir Kavetin, MDFCCM. To contact the editorial staff of the iCritical Care podcast with questions, comments, or ideas, please email iCriticalCare at sccm.org or info at sccm.org.